came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come into America. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here Sunday morning. We have one great show for you today. We have Peter Campbell, EVs, electric vehicles, and New Jersey's even considering them. We have Eric Schuffler talking about New Jersey politics. Congressman Peter King, Governor David Patterson, Paul Zuber from the Business Council. Why is New York State number 50 in desirability? Suzanne Miller, talk about real estate. And let's start off the show with Michael Stoller on Real Estate Reports. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning, I have one of the leading owners of office buildings in New York City, uh, a company who's been around close to 75 years, a third-generation company. I have Eric Garau, who's a principal at GFP Real Estate. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Michael. So how many buildings do you have in New York City today? It's about 55. Representing how many square feet? Uh, it's about 11 million feet. Now you and how are they broken down? You have a large number in the nonprofit world, right? We we're the largest privately held landlord of nonprofit tenants. So so privately held meaning you wouldn't include schools, you wouldn't include the sort of the city agencies. Um, but in terms of the amount of actual nonprofit tenants, we have more nonprofit tenants by square footage than anyone else in New York City. I'm proud of that. You should be because besides nonprofit, you're a very charitable organization. I know that also. It's Thank registered you. all the time. Starts starts at the top. No, no, no question about that. So what's really happening in the office market? You know, you hear certain things in the press, you, you read them each, each and every day, there's a different comment. What's really happening? So I think a couple of things. I think, I think one of the things I want to start with is sort of the, what are the things that people are reading, which is basically the statistical analysis, most of which is basically put together by the large brokerage companies. Now, the large brokerage companies generally, they only study sort of leasing transactions above 10,000 feet. However, a large majority of the tenants in New York City, probably some people think 75%, are under the 10,000 feet. So you're basically getting this data and statistics based on only a smaller part of the market, maybe by square footage. Per tenant, it might be large, but in terms of total tenants, there's more total tenants under 10,000 feet, which means the statistics aren't measuring any of their data. So I think some of the data has to be flawed. So maybe Mark Twain was right about statistics. So I think if they're not measuring what most of the people are doing, how do we know we're getting a positive outcome? So I think the other thing we're, do, we're seeing is people are studying the statistics around how many swipes of, of uh, access cards are, are co people coming into the building. So one of the questions is, if I come in on Monday and Wednesday and you come in on Tuesday and Thursday, does that mean one person came in that week or does that mean two people came in that week? Those things aren't being studied as closely. The other part of it is that, is that people think that the denominator when they say, say, 55% of people are coming in is 100%, and I don't think that's true. I think most companies would tell you that, that the on a typical day throughout the year, non-holidays, that there's more like an 85% of the people are actually in the office. So when they say 55%, it's really not 55% over 100. It's 55% over 85. So I don't think the statistics are really telling the story. <clears throat> so why, why don't the statistics provide the accurate information? I, I just think that I understand why the large brokerage firms, they only want to study the, the larger 
transactions because those are the ones they do most of and those are the ones they're really chasing. That makes sense to me. What it doesn't happen is the landlords don't get together and put together their own statistics because no one organizes us to do so and there's really no reason for us to do so. But I think if you look at some of the other statistics around the MTA, around the buses, around the trains, around people paying the tolls at the tunnels and bridges, I think a lot of those numbers are, are back up close to where they were pre-COVID, which means people are, again, enjoying the city and coming in you know, to, to do all the things that, that make New York great. Why do you believe the numbers of the people coming into your buildings? What percentage? I think the percentage, I think the percentage we track similar to what they, what they report through Castle in like the 55% um, number. But I can tell you like some of the things that, that we look at is, is how many actual people differentiating where if you and I came in on different days, that would count as two. So those numbers are actually a little higher. Um, what everyone's saying about, about Monday and Friday is right. We agree that, that Monday's light, Friday's lighter, and the middle of the week is, is definitely sort of more. So Wednesday is the big, the big day, including the shows. Yeah, no, the that's, the, that's the more populated day, right? Wednesday suddenly became important, right? It had that hump day thing for so long. It's finally something else. What do you see with regard to rents today for your buildings? Yes, yeah, so, so the rents have, have come down somewhat, but I realize they're, they're coming off their highs, right? So if you go back to pre-COVID, those are the highest rents that New York has ever gotten. So yeah, look, th- things swing and things shift and things bounce. So we're coming off those highs. So percentage-wise, it looks like a lot. But if you, if you go back to 10 years ago, right? 10 years ago, the, the, we were coming a couple of years out of sort of the recession in 08, 09, 10 years ago, 2013, the rents had just started to rise then from those sort of recession rents. So if you compare them to 10 years ago, they're very similar to what they were 10 years ago. So, you know, we survived 10 years ago. We think we'll, we'll survive again. I think the, the key piece that we always talk about is, is where does the office or any collaborative place work in the chain of, of, of productivity? So if you think about all the companies that want to be productive, how do they find their, their peak productivity? And, and for years, and there's a lot of evidence to this, Collaborative environments have been the thing that done it. So if you think about the things you use, the things you see, the things you touch, almost every single one of those things was created in a collaborative environment, whether it be an office or a lab or thought of in an in academic institution. We're not the typewriter. We weren't replaced by something better. What we've seen basically is all of these things were made in these environments, which included people being together. So and, until that becomes not the best way to be productive, we, we think that we'll sort of get back to where we were at the same time. Look, the labor markets are super strong. And what COVID created was almost like a labor event. You know, we've been watching the news with, with, the, with the auto workers, and it's almost the same kind of thing where, where people were allowed to, to work from home. Working from home wasn't new. It was old. It's just your employer allowing you to do it was new. You know, now we're having a hard time getting convincing people to come back. But if they can convince us they're just as productive doing what they're doing, I think companies will accept it. But if they can't convince us that they're just as productive and being together is going to be more productive, I think. Some companies will lean that way. So I think with regard to that, the late Sam Zell, the grave dancer, would be very happy and probably be very active at this time to buy properties. And I really think that you've been very influential, you and your company in the third generation, your father and your cousin, with regard to helping New York City. And I'd like to thank Eric Goral for being on the show today. See you you next week. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With us today is Peter Campbell. 
Uh, he's with the Financial Times in charge of the global industry of automobiles. And he's based in London. And uh, uh, Peter Campbell, well, you've been covering what's going on in the electric vehicles and gasoline vehicles. Uh, what are your findings? Thank you very much. Great to be with you this afternoon. Uh, well, look, what we're seeing in, in gasoline vehicles, but particularly in EV vehicles at the moment, is slowing demand for them everywhere, slowing growth uh, in EV sales, right? So EV sales are still rising. There's still more people buying them than they were before. But whether you look at the US or Europe or most other major markets, uh, they aren't selling quite as fast as everybody expected them to, right? And that, the reason for that, there's lots of reasons for that, which we'll get into. But fundamentally, it comes down to this one thing, and it is the early adopters have already adopted. Right? Everyone knows someone who has a Tesla already, and the mass market mainstream buyers are proving much, much more difficult to convert to EVs than everybody in the industry expected. Well, there's so many uh, problems uh, uh, in Florida. Uh, I, I've been told that uh, with the seawater hitting the batteries, they tend to explode uh, in very cold weather. In San Francisco, uh, one of the buses uh, it, it didn't have the power to go up those big hills and, and ended up going backwards. Uh, there's so many problems with them uh, where the Toyota chairman said, I'm going to make all the vehicles. I'm going to make uh, gas vehicles, diesel vehicles, uh, uh, you know, uh, electric vehicles, and let the consumer decide what they want. What say you? Well, it's very interesting. If you look at the car makers, which is where I spend most of my time writing about, some of them are going to go all EV. Some of them are going to go all EV quite soon. Quite a lot of them, though, the more pragmatic ones are saying we will sell petrol vehicles, we will sell hybrid vehicles, we will sell, uh, often in Europe, diesel vehicles, and we'll sell electric vehicles, and we'll let consumers make up their minds about which ones are best. Now, the issue is that you have regulations. Uh, you've got some in the States. We've got some in Europe as well that are pushing people to buy EVs faster uh, in order to reduce overall emissions. That's obviously important for the, you know, the benefit of the whole planet. Um, but there are uh, questions about how fast people are going to want to go into EVs. And actually, you know, there are a lot of scare stories around about EVs. People talk about vehicle fires and, and other issues and cold weather. And it is true that EVs uh, are less performing in cold weather and have less range. And it is true that there have been some vehicle fires, but quite a lot of the what you might call scare stories have put people off EVs. And it's just kind of further evidence that a lot of mainstream buyers who really are not that interested in being first into a technology, they just want a car that works. And they will take a lot more convincing, right? And that is partly the job of the industry to convince them. Uh, it is partly the job of governments who want people to buy EVs to convince them that those EVs are better. Uh, but fundamentally, it's all going to take time. It'll take time well, for the prices to come down. And once the prices come down, I think actually you'll see a lot of people want them. Uh, I believe that Jim Farley from Ford said uh, uh, last quarter they lost an average of $35,000 per EV. And, you know, how, and $4 billion. How often do you want to do, lose $4 billion and 35000 per EV? Uh, and um, at, at what point does the, the government stop subsidizing? Well, this is, the big, this is the big issue. It's the perennial issue with EV adoption, right? Which is that if you look at a map of where the world's biggest EV sales are, 
and you look at a map of the world's subsidies on EV sales, those maps are the same, right? Where EVs sold or where the subsidies are. And so it's going to be a real test of the market when the subsidies start to get unwound, which places are still wanting them. Now, EV technology, you know, even though it's been reasonably commonplace on our roads the last couple of years is still pretty early. We're still in the sort of second or third wave of mainstream EV vehicles coming out. And the technology is getting better all the time. We're expecting prices to come down. We're expecting range to go up. Uh, We're particularly expecting charging speeds to improve, which will make owning an EV much more like owning a gasoline vehicle in terms of being able to charge it quickly and then go about your day. And so once all those things happen and you get the price, particularly the sticker price of EVs uh, crossing over with sticker price of gasoline vehicles, then I think you will expect to see a lot of people doing that. But you're right. At the moment, a lot of the car makers are selling EVs because they have to, because they have to hit their targets and are sometimes losing, I mean, in force case, prodigious amounts of money on those EVs. And so the industry is braced across the whole car industry for a lot less profit initially early on in electric vehicles kind of hope is scale improves as volumes improve and as the factories get fuller that the profit on those vehicles will start to rise in future uh well people have to make up their minds i guess uh peter campbell uh thank you would you keep us informed and uh uh we will stay in touch with you and uh, and uh, we'll go quarter by quarter and see uh what the progress is absolute pleasure thank you very much Thank you. Peter Campbell of the Financial Times, global uh, motor industry correspondent. Thank you so much. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. What is today is Eric Schuffler, and uh, he is a lobbyist. He is a rainmaker in New Jersey. He was consul to uh, Governor McGreevy and, and so many other governors in Jersey. Tell us, uh, Eric, tell us about yourself. Uh, hey, John. My Happy mo- Thanksgiving, by the way. Gobble, gobble. Hope yeah. everyone had a great holiday. Um, my most important thing, I'm a dad and husband, and uh, but I've been in Jersey politics for almost 30 years. Counsel to Governor McGreevy, Governor Cody, uh, Chief of Staff to Bob Torcelli in the Senate, and proudly now your baseball partner in running uh, the Ferry Hawks and our year-round entertainment center over on Staten Island. And I run a lobby shop in New Jersey, been doing you know, political, operative, and government affairs work for 20, 30 years. Now, we're going to win the pennant uh, for the Atlantic League next year, right? We are finally going to make that corner and bring a title and a playoff contender to Staten Island and uh, have our own uh, Canyon of Heroes parade. Well, I look forward to it. <laughs> and uh, let's make sure we, you know, it was Thanksgiving was great. And uh, let's make sure we uh, have a great uh, holiday period of time, Christmas, New Year's. And, and we'll start the uh, New Year off right. Uh, tell us now, New Jersey. Many times we, we've had people on from New Jersey saying that the, uh, the, the GOP was hoping to sweep New Jersey, and they got a big disappointment. You're, you're on the Democratic side. Tell us what the heck is going on, and where do you see New Jersey going? Yeah, it's interesting. And my only, my only big interest in New Jersey, save our whales. We know you love the whales, and we want to keep the whales safe all along our beautiful uh, you know, coastline. I think the Republicans went into Election Day with high hopes. There was a sense that maybe a little bit Democratic fatigue, the culture wars, some issues around parental notification, the whales and offshore wind were really bringing together what they thought was going to be a big year for them. Turns out they were wrong for a lot of different reasons we can talk about. New Jersey is a blue state, but they didn't. New Jersey Democrats didn't do so well simply because it's a blue state. A lot of reasons behind it. 
I know the one big item that I was proud of Senator Schumer delivering to New York and to New Jersey is that new tunnel. Tell us about that. You know, the Gateway Tunnel has been a political dream and quest for 20, 30 years. So much of the New Jersey economy depends on getting our workers into New York. So much of the New York City economy depends on getting New Jersey workers in there. We are tied together at the hip. You know, we have a great CEO of Gateway, Chris Calori, the longtime transportation official. It's going to happen, and I think what it's going to mean for the economy, very, very significant. You know, Governor Murphy has made transit reform, you know, one of his signature issues. You know, congestion, traffic, it's a way of life for us here in New York and New Jersey. Finding ways that we can get employees to and from New York is good for both our economies. And uh, a mutual friend of ours, Governor McGreevy, is going to run for uh, mayor uh, tell us how that's going to turn out. And the, the big question I was asking the governor, I said, do I call you governor <laughs> or knows that after you win or do I call you mayor? I think he just likes to be called Jim. America loves a story of redemption and America loves a story of second chances. You know, and Governor McGreevy is one of the finest human beings I've met in this business. He's someone whose heart's in the right place. He's dedicated his, his life to helping prisoners rehabilitate themselves. He's a person who cares so much about government and people. You know, he's going to be the next mayor of Jersey City, and it is going to be a very different mayorship than I think they've seen. He's highly focused on affordability, highly focused on how do we find people who live, but he also understands how to leverage state resources and grow Jersey City. It's one of the fastest-growing cities in New Jersey. Lots going on there, lots of high-tech moving in, lots of finance, lots of housing opportunities, lots of development. A city really on the rise. Now, uh, 2024 is coming up. Uh, it's going to be a big presidential year where you have to decide how the country moves forward, and uh, we have to wait and see on that. What are the big elections that are coming up in New Jersey? We have a huge election coming up. Uh, the governor's race is 2025. So what we just saw in, two, in the last couple of weeks ago was the New Jersey legislature, the Democrats, expanded their presence. No one thought that was going to happen. So our majorities in the assembly increased. And I think a couple of reasons for that, John, that people look at that lead into where we go in the next two years. One, Democrats hyper-focused on affordability. I mean, you talk a lot about common sense, keeping people safe, keeping people in a state that they can afford to live in. Very disciplined message around making New Jersey affordable. The second is there's this growing trend around vote by mail that a lot of the Democrats have embraced as an organizationally. Republicans still, some mixed feelings on vote by mail. Some of that relates to the, you know, the hangover for when you know, former President Trump railed against you know, vote by mail efforts. Republicans still hesitant on that. But our big election is going to be 2024 with the Senate race that Senator Bob Menendez currently sits there. He's faced some ethical challenges and legal difficulties and is being challenged by a sitting congressman, Andy Kim, and the governor's wife, a very significant you know, political and policy person in her own right. Tammy Murphy has entered the race also. So that is a heavyweight battle. So uh, those are going to be, uh, they're going to be primary, uh, primary uh, on uh on the Senator Menendez's race? You will have not just a primary, you'll have a sitting senator primaried by a sitting congressman as well as the governor's wife, the first lady, who in her own right has her own policy experience and background. I don't think we've ever seen a dynamic with three people of that stature in the ring together. Well, I can't vote in New Jersey, but I would vote for the one that respects our whales. I go <laughs> back to Wales. What else do you think is important to New Jersey? I'd you know, I think the biggest this New Jersey has always been affordability. 
New Jersey is an expensive state to live. Our schools are top-notch. Our property taxes are high. People pay value for, to get into a good school system and pay for their home. It is a continual struggle for our politicians to figure out how to keep making it so that more people are coming in and want to pursue the American dream in New Jersey than are leaving because the cost gets too expensive. I think the Democrats won the last election because they were hyper-focused on it and the Republicans drifted into these culture war issues that have become popular on the right. So I think what New Jersey is looking at, our Senate president is back, our speaker's back. It's can they find a way to keep property taxes down? Can they find a way to keep the schools at a very high level? And how do you make it so people aren't leaving the state to go to Florida or South Carolina or North Carolina where they want to raise their families here? Thank you so much for coming on, Eric. I look forward to a great baseball season in the spring. Great baseball season. We're working on a lot of year-round entertainment, as you've said, John, trying to plan a concert, college baseball. We have a beer festival coming up. Year-round entertainment center with the best view of any ballpark in America. God bless you, and God bless America, and God bless New Jersey, too. Thank you so much. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. With us today is Congressman Peter King. I never say former. To me, he's always Congressman King. I hope you had a great uh, Thanksgiving uh, uh, day. And uh, what makes it a different Thanksgiving? And we're all being thankful than, than usual. And tell us where the heck you think our country is. Well, thank you, John. I hope you had a, a great Thanksgiving. All, all was good with our family. And uh, so that, that's something to be thankful for. As far as the country, I don't know if it's thankful or not, but first of all, it's the greatest country in the world. So you're always thankful for that. But I would say that the presidential race seems to be narrowing down on the Republican side. They what, 11, 12, 13 different candidates. Right now, it's uh, limiting down to uh, Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, and Ron DeSantis. And while Trump has the big lead, there's, again, the chance he runs into trouble in the beginning. Uh, you don't know what impact some of the trials might have on him. Uh, you don't know what might be going on. So DeSantis and Haley are really vying for second place so that if, if President Trump does begin, they can make their move. Right now, I think Haley is really showing uh, some real strength. She seems to be on the way up. You know, she's running second in New Hampshire. Uh, she's pulled ahead of DeSantis. So that'll be interesting to watch. I think she could give Joe Biden a real run for his money in the fall. But let's face it, Donald Trump is still the odds-on favorite to get the nomination. But you and I have been around politics long enough to know that anything can happen. Nothing's guaranteed. And uh, so if Donald Trump does start to slip or fall or drop, I think Nikki Haley is probably best positioned to take over. Now, on the Democratic side, Joe Biden, he seems like the odds-on favorite. No one's really opposing him. And yet, when you look in the newspapers, his own party would rather you know, that he not run. He's the most unpopular incumbent, probably, not just with the opposition party, but with his own party. And just so, so many things have gone wrong. Some uh, just sort of drop on him, but others are really self-imposed by him. So you heard this from some people, and so did I, that it may be too late to run primary opponents against Joe Biden, that he would actually uh, get the most delegates, go to the convention, be given the nomination, and then after he's nominated, he could uh, withdraw. And in that case, then you have the 
especially the Democratic leaders, the National Committee, I guess, members of Congress. I don't know how the Democrats have it structured, but it would be an inside game where they could pick their candidate, whether it's Gavin Newsom or I'm sure Kamala Harris would want it, but I don't think they would want her. So it could be very interesting. Uh, where you, the, two, the two guys who are the front runners now, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, could end up not being the nominees next fall. And it sounds crazy. If you had told me this a year or two ago, I'd say that we were both crazy. But uh, after what we've gone through in recent times, the way the world was turned upside down, I, I, to me, anything can happen. So that's a plausible scenario. And if it goes wrong, John, I'll blame you because you're the one who first got that thought in my head about Biden, Biden dropping out. The more I thought about it, I, I could see that happening. Well, uh, it, it could happen. It's, uh, the, those are the rules in the Democratic Party. You know, it's a long way. How did the Irish used to say it? Or who was it? Or was it the British? It's a long way to Tipperary. Tipperary. It was actually uh, the Irish who were going to fight for the British in World War One. They were singing that. And I, I never quite figured it out. My family is from near Tipperary. But that song never made sense to me. Also, John, one thing we left out, and this was really brought out on your show last week, Joe Manchin. What is the Joe Manchin factor going to be? Is he going to run? Is he not going to run? If he does run, who does he impact the most? What uh, impact would that have on the overall election? So uh, he's well, a, he did a very, wild Joe Manchin did very well on our show, and, and he oh, did speak yeah. a lot of common sense. He's, he's a very nice man. I've known Joe Manchin in Washington. I have to admit this on the air. My wife, Rosemary, is in love with Joe Manchin. She thinks he's the greatest guy in the world. I know he's, 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 a, he's just a, a solid person. I wouldn't agree with him on every issue, but I would agree with him on a lot of things. But he's an adult. He's an adult in the room. One thing you can be sure of, he's not going to make a bad decision. It may, may, may not be the decision that you like. It may not be the best decision. But he's never going to make a serious mistake uh, on, on behalf of the country. He's a, Again, the best way I can describe him, he's an adult. He's an adult in the room. He's a big guy. He knows what he's doing. And I think he can add a lot to the campaign, whether he can win or not. As a third party, that's tough. But a third party has never been more in demand than right now. So uh, that just adds to what we could be going through. Next year, it's interesting to watch. It can be fun to watch, except the future of the world can depend on it. The good news is uh, Mayor Adams has said he's not going to cut the police officers and, and the FDNY. Uh, so yeah, I happens. hope that has an improvement on uh, what happens in the streets of New York. I, I would hope so, John. I mean, this is, uh, it's our city. We love the city. And to see it decline the way it has, to see criminals thinking they have a free hand, to see that so many articles in stores have to be locked away, that uh, there's so many crimes that aren't even reported because people feel it's not worth it. No, and get, keep, those, keep the number of cops we have now. Give them the power they need. Stand with them, and we can start to turn the city around, turn the state around, and uh, stop having a half a million people leave every year. But, now listen, Eric, Eric Adams, he's uh, somehow recounted the numbers. They feel is, that there's no need right now to be cutting the police and the fire department. It would have been tragic to do it. And uh, so hopefully if this has settled and we can move forward, it's a great, great move for the city and something else to be thankful for. Peter King, Congressman to me, always, thank you very much for calling in. You have anything else that you want to put in? No, just uh, love doing the show, love uh, uh, being in New York, and uh, it was great Thanksgiving, and now we're on to a happy Hanukkah and Merry Christmas. I'll see you Monday. Thank you so much. You got it, John. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Governor David Patterson. 
I hope, Governor Patterson, you had a great uh, Thanksgiving week. Give us your, your, your evaluation. Where the heck is, uh, is our city, our state, our country in? Well, this past week, we learned that Mayor Adams is interested in trying to restore the resources to the New York City Police Department, the New York City Fire Department, and the Department of Sanitation. In the second round of cuts, they will be held harmless, which is very good because this is what he wanted to do from the outset. I think the reason that the NYPD got on the list in the first place was that the mayor wanted it and that there were a lot of other objections to cuts in other areas. I mean, these areas are very important. I mean, the libraries, obviously, um, the transportation issues, they're all important. But what I think last week really teaches us is that when it comes to budgeting, you have to account for any item that you want to restore by cutting in another area. And I think this is something that not only do the elected officials have trouble dealing with, but even the the media does. That, in other words, you can say, yes, we don't want to cut the libraries. We don't want to to lose the um, summer sessions for the younger people that don't have, you know, opportunities to go other places. But if we do put that money back, we have to take it from someplace else. And you you read these stinging newspaper articles about how bad it will be if you cut this and you cut that. But the reality is that if that's the case uh, and we agree, then we've got to find another area to to use to re- for that restoration. And that doesn't seem to be something that only the executives seem to understand that when it comes budget time. Yeah, absolutely correct on that. Now, uh Mayor Adams, uh, I did a Zoom call with him last week uh, uh, with 300 business people. And uh, people like him when they talk to him. And uh, he, uh, he's got a talent of uh, talking to people. Tell us uh, why the, the FBI has never gone uh, after a, a major city like New York uh, for the mayor. I mean, uh, what say you? What, what, what are your thoughts? Well, it seems very unusual because, for instance, in this case, they're saying that when he was borough president, he asked the fire department to look into the Turkish consulate. And maybe he did do that. It's not a crime. It's not a crime. I I agree it's not a crime. It's like saying, look, it's up to the fire department to do their job. And you, you say to you, know, you make and you tell the fire department make sure you do the right job. What that's not a crime, exactly. And I mean, you know, it, it's all the time. People have called elected officials, asked them to, you know, fast track particular situations. Now, the one thing you can't do in government is to move people up on the list to the point that there is uh, an advantage for the party that has the uh, friends with stronger political connections. So I can understand how you can't do that. But then they um, bother the mayor with you know going to his fundraiser's home on the same day that he's coming to Washington to talk to the feds about the migration situation. And then they 
run up on him at some event and say that they want his security to get out of the way. They get in the car with him. They take his cell phones and electro equipment. That is sounding a little more Orwellian to me than what has gone on in the past. I mean, I've heard about people at all kinds of problems, and maybe eventually they did get in trouble. But there wasn't this focus on them. And as uh, the mayor points out, if you want to be angry about the budget, it really a lot of this money that has is being spent is on the migration situation that was brought to us by Washington D.C. And that's why he said, "Don't blame me, blame D.C." You know, it's catchy, but it it really unearths a stronger point that unless there's some political issue, which I would be shocked to find out that they did this because. The mayor was criticizing their policy on migration and where they were sending the migrants. That'd be an all-time low. And so, um, you know, we we continue to to hope that in in his position that he's strong and that he's able to address these particular issues. And, he, you know, you could clearly tell that he was kind of surprised at what's going on the last few weeks. But I think that he has a very good chance to get through all this. Uh, Governor Patterson, we got a minute left. Uh, what else would you like to tell, talk about New York? Well, we're coming up on uh, a new year, and this will be our quadrennial referendum on issues and presumably leadership. And so uh, what goes on on these local levels, like what we've talked about here in New York City, will go on all around the country in different places, and it will inevitably lead to our election. And uh, hopefully this process will go in a way that there isn't the kind of controversy that there was after our election in, in 2020. Governor David Patterson, thank you for giving us your input every uh, Sunday on the Cats Roundtable. And God bless you and God bless America. Oh, thank you, John. And I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. With us today is Paul Zuber. Uh, he is uh, the vice, senior vice president with the New York Business Council for the state of New York. New York has been voted number 50 out of 50 states in desirability to live there. There's so many problems in New York City, New York State. Paul, what the heck is going on? What, what bothers you the most? Can we save New York? Um, I think we can save New York, but I, I think what has to happen is that our elected officials need to understand a very important point. And that point is that whether we like it or not, the economy in the United States and the world has changed. And that's been accelerated by COVID. So there used to be a point in time that we used to all go to the office five days a week. We would be located or headquartered in a particular uh, location. We had to do work from our location, but that's all changed. People do remote work. Um, you don't need to be in a particular state in order to do work. So now when you put upon businesses and taxpayers these incredible taxes and cost of living, you know, it's easy for companies to pick up and leave and go someplace else, right? So like I use the financial services industry. You no longer have to be on the floor of Wall Street to trade, you trade by using your computer. I can I can be a successful hedge fund manager or stock trader, whether I'm in Florida or whether I'm in New York City. 
So people have to understand, our elected officials have to understand that when you pile on with these pieces of legislation that make it harder for people to do business in New York, the answer for executives is simple. We'll just go someplace else. And folks need to understand that. And, you know, whether it's taxes or right now we have a bill that the governor is reviewing. It uh, would ban non-competes agreements in New York State. Now, I think to the rank-and-file person that says, oh, great, you know, ban non-competes. I don't want to be under a non-compete. But the problem with that bill is companies that are either considering coming to New York or companies that are currently in this is the type of thing that is going to drive them out of New York. Why, if I'm a big research and development company, why would I want to come to New York with the understanding that my top people could leave with all that information, go to a competing company, and suddenly my competition has the same information that I have? Or if I'm a financial um, services company, that one of my type person can leave and take all the clients with him. You know, it it just doesn't work anymore in this economy. And the more that our politicians, our elected officials keep piling on, the worse it gets. Yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't want my headquarters to be in New York. I would even consider moving my headquarters out of New York uh, if a a law like that took effect. Well, yeah, and you know what, John? And, And this is the other part that our elected officials don't understand. Sometimes they don't understand the dominoes, right? So you you lose a company coming into New York. Let's say you lose a financial services uh, company in New York City. You're not only losing the tax revenue that comes from those employees in New York City, but you're also losing the commercial rent tax that these companies likely would be paying or the, the lease holder would be paying because they have occupancy in that office space. So when our occupancy rate drops in these office buildings, it decreases our commercial rent tax, which goes directly to the New York City budget and is a big part of the New York City budget. So we're looking at budget deficits, but we're not doing anything in the state to bring people in and want them to locate in New York City. And so this non-compete bill is something that is just on its face is going to be the type of thing that's going to drive people out of New York City, out of New York State, and what's going to happen to the rank-and-file person? Well, you know, the New York City budget deficit is going to get larger. The New York State budget deficit is going to get larger. And that means the services that you depend on are going to get cut because there's no other choice. And elected officials need to understand that, they're, that we're, in a compet- we're in a different sort of competitive economic environment that we've never been in before. Before, we were New York. We were New York City. Who wouldn't want to be in New York City? It's the greatest city in the world. Eh, I can be in Miami and do the same job that I did when I was in New York City. Uh, last week, we had uh, uh, Jimmy Petronas, the CFO of Florida, on, and he says like 160 uh, different financial companies have moved to Miami and ma- trying to make Miami a new capital for the finance, uh, financial area. We, we just did a study, John. Um, it was a study that we did with the New York Bankers Association and SIFMA, which works with all the investment companies. And we found that there is a significant out-migration of financial services to other states. And not only is there an out-migration, but we're not keeping pace with other states, which are booming with an increase in companies that do financial services. So we're losing a huge portion of our tax base 
And, you know, I know for a fact, you know, uh, Heather Mulligan, who is our CEO, she talks often to other chambers uh, throughout the country. And I can tell you right now that the Florida Chamber of Commerce, they're openly, openly recruiting New York businesses to come come to Florida. We have low taxes. We don't have the same burdens. And people are moving to Florida. So, so I, I think we have to understand what this means for everybody, not just rich people or middle class people or poor people. It means something for everybody because it impacts our New York City and New York State budget. Well, New York is moving to Florida. It's like not moving to a strange state because half of Florida is probably New Yorkers. Yeah, absolutely. And so if I so and, and to your point, if I move, if I were to up and leave and go to go to Florida, it wouldn't be like a fish out of water because I, there would be like, there would be hundreds of people that I know that are already down there that are already creating uh, new lives down in Florida without the, the financial burdens that, that exist in New York State. You know, and to, to your first question, can we fix it? Yes, we can fix it. But we just have to be smart about the legislation that we pass, the legislation that the governor signs. I understand that there is a progressive movement in New York State and you know, I'm not quibbling with them on every issue, but what folks have to understand is the agenda that you want, you know, you want to provide things to create things for all people in New York State. You will never achieve that agenda if you drive businesses out of New York State because there won't be enough money in the state or city coffers to help the people that you claim to want to help. What else can we do? I mean, uh, uh... Are the legislators in Albany, I mean, you represent the business community, are the mm. legislators in Albany or New York at least cognizant that uh, there's going to be a lot of pain when the budget starts cutting? Well, I, I think there's two things we can do. I think from the business standpoint and something that we started to do at the Business Council is we need to start being more active with letting the public know about what really is going on, what this legislation really means, not just talking to the elected officials and their staff, but talking directly to the public. That's one thing that we did with the non-compete bill. We have an educational campaign that's going on through Public Policy Institute, which is an affiliate of of the Business Council. That's going to be very important. And I think the other thing that's very important is I think people are, are kind of voting with their feet. They're, they're, they're walking out. I, I think, you know, the public has to start voting at the poll box, right? They, they have to let the politicians know and understand that this isn't sustainable. And, you know, there's going to be consequences. Paul, but I, I think it's when we had the city and, council, and when we had the city council elections, less than 10 percent voted. I mean, it's it, it's, it's yeah, horrifying. It's, it, it's horrifying. And the problem is the group that is going to the polls and running to the polls are are in some ways are the the, the segment of the population that really isn't speaking for the rest yeah. of the population if, if you can understand Paul, what i'm what i'm saying there yes we're out of time thank you and we're going to continue this conversation because new york depends on uh, us working and letting getting the message across thank you so much well, and, uh, well, and thank you for all you do john i tr- truly appreciate it because you're a champion of business Thank you. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. What is today for a special uh, real estate report is Suzanne Miller. And she's got one of the top podcasts. And uh, Suzanne, what was the last few uh, uh, iPods you did? Uh, you know, iPods. 
Thank you, John. Thanks for letting me come on today. Last week we had um, Mayor Adams, and he spoke about the city and what's happening with the budget and the federal investigation. The week before that we had Andrew Cuomo, our former governor, and it looks like both these people are going to be running again for mayor, according to the Post today. So uh, that was pretty interesting, and we talked about real estate. Well, I was asked to quote on it from the New York Post, and I said, look, uh, right now Eric Adams is, uh, is the mayor, and uh, uh, I think the likelihood he stays mayor, he's going to be good. Uh, but uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, really desires to run for something, and whatever, whatever position comes open, then he'll decide if he's going to run or not. Well, I think they're both two good candidates, and we just want to keep the city safe, and we want to keep the real estate values high. That's the most important thing is real estate. Well, the real estate uh, is very important, and safety. Yes. And I did a uh, a Zoom call with 300 business people last week, uh, and uh, Mayor Adams was on it. And I said the number one, and he acknowledged it, you know, on his budget cuts, he didn't cut the police department. Uh, he acknowledged that if people don't uh, feel safe, they're going to continue to leave New York City and New York State. And uh, he did not cut the budgets on the police officers. But let's wait and see. Uh, the other problem we have is uh, why are they uh, building jails when we're out of money? Well, it's, it's a big issue, John. Thank you for getting him to not cut the police because, as you said, real estate and safety are the same thing. So I think that we're going to talk about real estate. One of the big things in the news right now seems to be this new law that's taking effect as of January 1 where buyers will not be able to get a commission from a seller. It used to be that a seller would give somebody a listing, would give an agent a listing, and it would be up to the agent to co-broke it. What's happening now is that the seller is only hiring one agent, and they, if the buyer wants to be represented, they have to have their own listing agreement with the seller. So the seller will only hire one person, not two. So this way, they, it's just a way for them to cut the commissions. Understood. Now, let's go into the big picture. Mm -hmm. uh, new buildings being built in New York uh, are renting for very, very high numbers. Uh, the uh, building, existing buildings uh, some people are saying that uh, prices are softening. Uh, what's the real truth? What's going on? Well, on the sales, the, again, the transactions are down. They're down about 10% because, again, because the interest rates, they've come down a half point, and I think it'll probably stay around 7.5% through the end of the year. But, again, people do, are not selling for higher rates to buy something lower. You have a lot of apartments that are sitting empty, particularly around the billionaire's row. There was an article in the paper today about that. They're just sitting empty. They're not rented, and they're just vacant. And again, because the transactions are low, New York right now is down about 10%. And again, we're going to see what happens in the coming months. Understood. Um, what else would you like to tell people? We've uh, we got a minute left. So let's talk about the rentals, John. The rental is very interesting. It's finally starting to loosen up a little bit. What's happening in the rental market is that there's a lot of concessions being given. So the price, the, the face value of these apartments have not really changed, but landlords are giving a month free, another month to, the, to a broker. So they're giving two, three months up front, which is netting less, but the face value of the apartment 
seems to be the same. So this way they could keep their rent roll on their mortgages. Yeah, but owners, uh, interest rates are way up. uh, And a lot of owners are suffering. Uh, Rates for uh, heating oil are way up. uh, Energy costs. So uh, there's a squeeze play between owners of real estate and uh, and the banks uh, because the banks at one of these days are going to start getting very upset. Well, that's affecting the office vacancy, and they are moving ahead with the zoning on that to try and move that along a little bit, and I hope that happens. My, yeah, you could hope all you want, but my, my opinion is slim and none. Uh, it, it'll happen, but it's going to be a long time to temporary. Yesterday we had George Pataki on the Miller Report, and he said, that we will not be able to absorb all of the vacancy that's happening right now, no matter what we do. That's so, 100% correct. He was, he's a good guy. Suzanne Miller, keep working hard, save our city, save our state, and uh, we'll catch up with you again real soon. Thank you. And Mark. tell us about the Miller Report. It's uh, it, the WA- Miller Report. It's on WABCradio.com on the podcast. Comes out every Monday. And who do you have next week? Next week, I have Sid Rosenberg. Two weeks later, I have Anthony Scaramucci. And then the next coming guest is a very big surprise. Big name. Big name. Well, thank you so much, and we look forward to listening. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.